Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Republic, Book 5, Part 4 Then, next, it seems, we should try to discover and point out what's now badly done in cities that keeps them from being governed in that way, and what's the smallest change that would enable our city to reach our sort of constitution. One change, if possible, or if not one, two, and if not two, then the fewest in number and the least extensive. Well, that's absolutely right. There is one change we could point to that, in my opinion, would accomplish this. It's certainly neither small nor easy, but it is possible. What is it? Well, I've now come to what we likened to the greatest wave. But I shall say what I have to say, even if the wave is a wave of laughter that will simply drown me in ridicule and contempt. So listen to what I'm going to say. Say on. Until philosophers rule as kings in cities or those who are now called kings and leading men, genuinely and adequately philosophize. That is, until political power and philosophy entirely coincide, while the many natures who at present pursue either one exclusively, or forcibly prevented from doing so, cities will have no rest from evils, Glaucon, nor, I think, will the human race. And, until this happens... The Constitution we've been describing in theory will never be born to the fullest extent possible, or see the light of the sun. It's because I saw how very paradoxical this statement would be that I hesitated to make it for so long, for it's hard to face up to the fact that there can be no happiness, either public or private, in any other city. Socrates, after hurling a speech and statement like that at us, you must expect that a great many people and not undistinguished ones either, will cast off their cloaks and, stripped for action, snatch any available weapon and make a determined rush at you, ready to do terrible things. So, unless you can hold them off by argument and escape, you really will pay the penalty of general derision. Well, you're the one that brought this on me. And I was right to do it. However, I won't betray you, but rather defend you in any way I can. By good will, by urging you on, and perhaps by being able to give you more appropriate answers than someone else. So, with the promise of this assistance, try to show the unbelievers that things are as you say they are. I must try it, then, especially since you agree to be so great an ally. If we're to escape from the people you mention, I think we need to define for them who the philosophers are that we dare to say must rule. And once that's clear, we should be able to defend ourselves by showing that the people we mean are fitted by nature both to engage in philosophy and to rule in a city, while the rest are naturally fitted to leave philosophy alone and follow their leader. This would be a good time to give that definition. Come then, follow me, and we'll see whether or not there's some way to set it out adequately. Lead on. Do you need to be reminded or do you remember that, if it's rightly said that someone loves something, then he mustn't love one part of it and not another. But he must love all of it? I think you'll have to remind me, for I don't understand it at all. That would be an appropriate response, Glaucon, for somebody else to make. But it isn't appropriate for an erotically inclined man to forget that all boys in the bloom of youth pique the interest of a lover of boys and arouse him, and that all seem worthy of his care and pleasure. Isn't that the way you people behave to fine and beautiful boys? 
You praise a snub-nosed one as cute. A hook-nosed one, you say, is regal. One in between is well-proportioned. Dark ones look manly, and pale ones are children of the gods. And as for a honey-colored boy, do you think that this very term is anything but the euphemistic coinage of a lover who found it easy to tolerate sallowness, provided it was accompanied by the bloom of youth? In a word, you find all kinds of terms and excuses so as not to reject anyone whose flower is in bloom. If you insist on taking me as your example of what erotically inclined men do, then, for the sake of argument, I agree. Further, don't you see wine lovers behaving in the same way? Don't they love every kind of wine and find any excuse to enjoy it? Certainly. And I think you see honor lovers, if they can't be generals, be captains. And if they can't be honored by people of importance and dignity, they put up with being honored by insignificant and inferior ones, for they desire the whole of honor. Exactly. Then do you agree with this or not? When we say that someone desires something, do we mean that he desires everything of that kind, or that he desires one part of it but not another? We mean he desires everything. Then won't we also say that the philosopher doesn't desire one part of wisdom rather than another, but desires the whole thing? Yes, that's true. And as for the one who's choosy about what he learns, especially if he's young and can't yet give an account of what is useful and what isn't, we won't say that he is a lover of learning or a philosopher, for we wouldn't say that someone who's choosy about his food is hungry or has an appetite for food or is a lover of food. Instead, we'd say that he's a bad eater, and we'd be right to say it. But the one who readily and willingly tries all kinds of learning, who turns gladly to learning and is insatiable for it, is rightly called a philosopher, isn't he? Then many strange people will be philosophers, for the lovers of sights seem to be included, since they take pleasure in learning things. And the lovers of sounds are very strange people to include as philosophers, for they would never willingly attend a serious discussion or spend their time that way, yet they run around to all the Dionysiac festivals, omitting none, whether in cities or villages, as if their ears were under contract to listen to every chorus. Are we to say that those people and those who learn similar things or petty crafts are philosophers? No, but they are like philosophers. And who are the true philosophers? Those who love the sight of truth. That's right, but what exactly do you mean by it? It would not be easy to explain to someone else, but I think that you will agree to this. To what? Since the beautiful is the opposite of the ugly, they are two. Of course. And since they are two, each is one? I grant that also. And the same account is true of the just and the unjust, the good and the bad, and all the forms. Each of them is itself one. But because they manifest themselves everywhere, in association with actions, bodies, and one another, each of them appears to be many. That's right. So, I draw this distinction. On one side are those you just now call lovers of sights, lovers of crafts, and practical people. On the other side are those we are arguing about and whom one would alone call philosophers. How do you mean? The lovers of sights and sounds like beautiful sounds, colors, shapes, and everything fashioned out of them. But their thought is unable to see and embrace the nature of the beautiful itself. That's for sure. In fact, there are very few people who would be able to reach the beautiful itself and see it by itself. 
Isn't that so? Certainly. What about someone who believes in beautiful things, but doesn't believe in the beautiful itself, and isn't able to follow anyone who could lead them to knowledge of it? Don't you think he is living in a dream rather than a wakened state? Isn't this dreaming, whether asleep or awake, to think that a likeness is not a likeness, but rather the thing itself that it is like? I certainly think that someone who does that is dreaming. But someone who, to take the opposite case, believes in the beautiful itself, can see both it and the things that participate in it, and doesn't believe that the participants are it, or that it itself is the participants, is he living in a dream, or is he awake? He's very much awake. So we'd be right to call this thought knowledge, since he knows, but should call the other person's thought opinion, since he opines. Right. What if the person who has opinion but not knowledge is angry with us and disputes the truth of what we are saying? Is there some way to console him and persuade him gently while hiding from him that he isn't in his own right mind? There must be. Consider, then, what we'll say to him. Won't we question him like this? First, we'll tell him that nobody begrudges him any knowledge he may have, and that we'd be delighted to discover that he knows something. Then we'll say, tell us, does the person who knows know something or nothing? You answer for him. He knows something. Something that is or something that is not? Something that is. For how could something that is not be known? Then we have an adequate grasp of this. No matter how many ways we examine it, what is completely is completely knowable. And what is in no way is in every way unknowable. A most adequate one. Good. Now, if anything is such as to be and also not to be, won't it be intermediate between what purely is and what in no way is? Yes, it's intermediate. Then, as knowledge is set over what is, while ignorance is of necessity set over what is not, mustn't we find an intermediate between knowledge and ignorance to be set over what is intermediate between what is and what is not, if there is such a thing? Certainly. Do we say that opinion is something? Of course. A different power from knowledge or the same? A different one. Opinion, then, is set over one thing, and knowledge over another, according to the power of each. Right. Now, isn't knowledge by its nature set over what is, to know it as it is? But first maybe we'd better be a bit more explicit. How so? Powers are a class of the things that are, that enable us, or anything else for that matter, to do whatever we are capable of doing. Sight, for example, and hearing are among the powers, if you understand the kind of thing I'm referring to. I do. Here's what I think about them. A power has neither color nor shape, nor any feature of the sort that many other things have, and that I use in my own case to distinguish those things from one another. In the case of a power, I use only what it is set over and what it does, and by reference to these I call each the power it is. What is set over the same things and does the same I call the same power. What is set over something different and does something different 
I call a different one. Do you agree? I do. Then let's back up. Is knowledge a power, or what class would you put it in? It's a power, the strongest of them all. And what about opinion? Is it a power or some other kind of thing? It's a power as well, for it is what enables us to opine. A moment ago, you agreed that knowledge and opinion aren't the same. How could a person with any understanding think that a fallible power is the same as an infallible one? Right. Then we agree that opinion is clearly different from knowledge. It is different. Hence, each of them is by nature set over something different and does something different. Necessarily. Knowledge is set over what is, to know it as it is. Yes. And opinion opines. Yes. Does it opine the very thing that knowledge knows, so that the knowable and the opinable are the same? Or is this impossible? It's impossible given what we agreed, for if a different power is set over something different, and opinion and knowledge are different powers, then the knowable and the opinable cannot be the same. Then, if what is, is knowable, the opinable must be something other than what is. It must. Do we, then, opine what is not? Or is it impossible to opine what is not? Think about this. Doesn't someone who opines set his opinion over something? Or is it possible to opine yet to opine nothing? It's impossible. But someone who opines opines some one thing. Yes. Surely the most accurate word for that which is not isn't one thing, but no thing. Certainly. But we had to set ignorance over what is not and knowledge over what is. That's right. So someone opines neither what is nor what is not. How could it be otherwise? Then opinion is neither ignorance nor knowledge? So it seems. Then does it go beyond either of these? Is it clearer than knowledge or darker than ignorance? No, neither. Is opinion, then, darker than knowledge, but clearer than ignorance? It is. Then it lies between them. Yes. So opinion is intermediate between these two. Absolutely. Now, we said that if something could be shown, as it were, to be and not to be at the same time, it would be intermediate between what purely is and what in every way is not, and that neither knowledge nor ignorance would be set over it, but something intermediate between ignorance and knowledge. Correct. And now the thing we call opinion has emerged as being intermediate between them. It has. Apparently, then, it only remains for us to find what participates in both being and not being, and cannot correctly be called purely one or the other, in order that, if there is such a thing, we can rightly call it the opinable, thereby setting the extremes over the extremes, and the intermediate over the intermediate. Isn't that so? It is. Now that these points have been established, I want to address a question to our friend who doesn't believe in the beautiful itself, or any form of the beautiful itself, that remains always the same in all respects, but who does believe in the many beautiful things, the lover of sights who wouldn't allow anyone to say that the beautiful itself is one, or that the just is one, or any of the rest. My dear fellow, we'll say, of all the many beautiful things, is there one that will not also appear ugly? 
Or is there one of those just things that will not also appear unjust? Or one of those pious things that will not also appear impious? Well, there isn't one, for it is necessary that they appear to be beautiful in a way, and also to be ugly in a way. And the same with the other things you asked about. What about the many doubles? Do they appear any the less halves than doubles? Not one. So, with the many bigs and smalls and lights and heavies, is any one of them more the thing someone says it is than its opposite? No. Each of them always participates in both opposites. Is any one of the many's what someone says it is, then, any more than it is and not what he says it is? No. They are like the ambiguities one is entertained with at dinner parties, or like the children's riddle about the eunuch who threw something at a bat, the one about what he threw at it and what it was in. For they are ambiguous, and one cannot understand them as fixedly being or fixedly not being, or as both or as neither. Then do you know how to deal with them? Or can you find a more appropriate place to put them than intermediate between being and not being? For they can't be darker than what is not, in the sense of having less being than that, nor clearer than what is, in the sense of having more being. Very true. We've now discovered, it seems, that according to the many conventions of the majority of people about beauty and the others, they are rolling around as intermediates between what is not and what purely is. We have. And we agreed earlier that anything of that kind would have to be called the opinable, not the knowable. The wandering intermediate grasp by the intermediate power. We did. As for those who study the many beautiful things but do not see the beautiful itself, and are incapable of following another who leads them to it, who see many just things but not the just itself, and so with everything, these people, we shall say, opine everything, but have no knowledge of anything they opine. Necessarily. What about the ones who in each case study the things themselves that are always the same in every respect? Won't we say that they know and don't opine? That's necessary too. Shall we say, then, that these people love and embrace the things that knowledge is set over, as the others do the things that opinion is set over? Remember, we said that the latter saw and loved beautiful sounds and colors and the like, but wouldn't allow the beautiful itself to be anything. We remember all right. We won't be in error, then, if we call such people lovers of opinion rather than philosophers or lovers of wisdom and knowledge. Will they be angry with us if we call them that? Not if they take my advice, for it isn't right to be angry with those who speak the truth. As for those who in each case embrace the thing itself, we must call them philosophers, not lovers of opinion. Most definitely. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>